Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, English composer Frederick Delius lived and worked in Florida in the mid-1880s. He was very inspired by the landscape. He was very inspired by the nature of the grove and of the river. We'll discuss the process of editing historical documents. Most people hear the term documentary editing and think film. But in this case, we mean documents as in letters, diaries, sermons, speeches, and other written communication. And we'll talk about the Moorish revival architecture of Apalaka City Hall. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. In his orchestral work, The Florida Suite, English composer Frederick Delius depicts 19th century life on the St. John's River. Delius's father wanted him to be a businessman instead of a composer, so he sent his son to Florida to manage an orange grove near Jacksonville. Delius lived in a modest house in Solano Grove in the mid-1880s. Delius wasn't very successful at running the citrus grove on his property, but it was his time here that inspired him to write the Florida Suite. Kimberly Beasley is chair of the music department at Jacksonville University. He was very inspired by the landscape. He was very inspired by the nature of the grove and of the river. So a lot of his compositions reflect that image we have of the sunset through the trees on the St. John's, um, the birds in the trees, bird sounds, a lot of images of water um, in his music that you, that you sense he's writing about water or on the water. William Shermer is music professor emeritus at Jacksonville University. He looked and he listened. He looked at the scenery. He listened to the workers, who were mostly Afro-American, sing in the fields and also occasionally dance at night and just have fun. This shows up in the um, Florida Suite. Kimberly Beasley. One of his operas, Kawanga, which we have the original score of in our archive here at Jacksonville University, was written with those storylines in mind and inspired that work. Um, and a lot of his music are, has 
rhythmic elements that gets at the traditions of that music. Jacksonville University has an archive of materials related to the life and work of composer Frederick Delius. Allison Crawford is the Delius Archive Librarian. We have his compositions. Uh, we have Coanga, for instance, right in front of me. We have the uh, volumes of that. This is volume one. Behind me is another volume. We also have a bust of, uh, of him as well. We also have a number of his recordings in various formats. We also have letters and correspondence between him and uh, his wife, um, various other composers and friends. Um, we have biographies of him. Um, we also have uh, a thesis that has been done. Um, we have Delius Society journals. We also have the Delius Festival programs and posters of the festivals, also uh, pictures of the Delius House and a variety of other materials as well. The 22-year-old Frederick Delius received some of his earliest musical training in Jacksonville. William Shermer. Thomas Ward was a church organist in Jacksonville, and evidently he was well-grounded in music theory and, and composition. After leaving Florida in 1886, Delius continued studying music in Germany and France. He was influenced by composers including Richard Wagner, Claude Debussy, and his friend Edvard Grieg. Like Grieg, Delius continued to be inspired by folk music and nature. Kimberly Beasley and William Shermer. He was very good friends with Grieg. And the opera, my students and I worked on a one-act opera last year of his life. We called it The Life of Frederick Delius in Songs and Scenes. And we used the Lionel Carley books of letters lots of letters between he and Grieg, and he would ask Grieg advice on his compositions. He would send him manuscripts and have him give him feedback. Um, he was particularly close to Grieg in that way. Percy Granger was another influence. Um, Wagner to an extent, but the Impressionists, he wasn't personally in contact with Impressionist composers, but his, his compositions during that time let us know that he was aware of, of those composers, WC, 4A. Ravel. He has always been attracted by nature on hearing the first cuckoo in spring and also the common folk. I'm thinking of the Dance Rhapsody and Brig Fair, Over the Hills and Far Away. Those pieces are 
typical Delius. His compositions vary in style from his early to his late. He definitely is more romantic early, and then as the compositions progress into the 20th century, he becomes a little more impressionistic and even chromatic. But yes, those elements of Florida and his the writing that he did here in Florida never left. And you can, you can see that throughout his work. The small four-room house where Delius lived in the mid-1880s was originally located about 35 miles south of Jacksonville in Solano Grove. It sat abandoned for years but was rediscovered in 1939. The home was relocated to Jacksonville University in 1961 and moved to its current location on campus in the 1990s. A square piano that belonged to Delius is inside the home. Scott Watkins is professor of piano at Jacksonville University. Jacksonville University's tried its best to take care of it, um, and it's, a, it's an old house, and it needs a lot of uh, tender loving care, and uh, uh, we're very proud of it, actually. Uh, we've had people from England come to visit it a number of times. Uh, it's a well-known destination for Delius researchers, um, people are interested in early American um, music, composition, certainly people interested in Frederick Delius's early life. Um, but we've had a number of scholars come and take a look at it and walk around and take pictures, and every time they do that, it just always fills me with pride to know that people internationally are, are very interested in this house. We spoke with Kimberly Beasley, William Shermer, and Scott Watkins from the Department of Music at Jacksonville University and librarian Allison Crawford from the Delius Archive. The Florida Suite by Frederick Delius remains his best known work. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings wrote about the people of rural Florida in the 1930s and 40s. Her most famous work, The Yearling, won the 1939 Pulitzer Prize for Fiction and was made into a film. Her autobiographical work, Cross Creek, describes her life in Backwoods, Florida, near Gainesville. The Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference are being presented together May 19th through 21st at the Hilton Conference Center in Gainesville. Registration for the conference is at myfloridahistory.org along with a link to discounted hotel registration. The conference will have panel discussions and presentations each morning to include Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jack E. Davis, historic preservationist and Zora Festival organizer N.Y. Nathiri, author and oral historian Paul Ortiz, and many others. Topics will include Marge and Julia, the correspondence between Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings and Julia Scribner Bigham, Ditch of Dreams, the Cross-Florida Barge Canal and the Struggle for Florida's Future, Oral History, Genealogy, and Researching Underrepresented Populations, Florida Literature, Historical Perspectives in Fiction and Nonfiction, Public History, Historic Preservation, and Building for the Future, 
the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community and the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities, and more. We'll tour the home of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings and visit the George A. Smathers Library Archive. We'll see a special video presentation of the Opera Orlando production, The Secret River, based on a children's story by Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings at the historic Hippodrome Theater. We'll tour the Harn Museum of Art, the Florida Museum of Natural History, and the Matheson History Museum. There will be an awards luncheon, a reception featuring live music from Little Jake and the Soul Searchers, and a banquet dinner with keynote speaker Anne McCutcheon, author of The Life She Wished to Live, a biography of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, author of The Yearling. There will also be a few surprises. The Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference is May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, I know that you've been teaching a course on scholarly editing for several years. Tell us about that course. Well, several years ago, the University of Central Florida College of Arts and Humanities began offering an undergraduate interdisciplinary certificate in editing. Some of the courses offered included editing for creative writers, documentation and project management, and visual technical communication. I teach a course titled Scholarly Editing. This skills-based course focuses on understanding how scholarly journals work and hones student skills in copy editing. One aspect of the course that many students have not previously considered is that of documentary editing. As their textbook notes, documentary editing is, in this instance, not what you think. Most people hear the term documentary editing and think film, but in this case, we mean documents as in letters, diaries, sermons, speeches, and other written communication. Why would historical documents need to be edited, you may ask? Shouldn't they be read as is? The answer is yes and no. Document editing is older than the Republic. The letters of political and religious leaders of the colonial era were transcribed and published to make them more accessible to a larger audience even before the establishment of the United States. By the early 20th century, historians were creating a methodology for transcribing historical materials. And by the mid-20th century, the National Historical Publications and Records Commission NHPRC, and the National Endowment for the Humanities, NEH, began providing grant funding to promote the preservation and uses of America's documentary heritage, a service that was deemed essential to preserving and understanding our democracy, history, and culture. To that point, most preservation was directed toward papers of those viewed as the great men, mostly white, economic, and political leaders. The social upheavals of the mid-century 
brought a reassessment of what constitutes history, and the preservation of the documentary past expanded to include women, minorities, and social and political organizations. Today, there are documentary editing projects in a number of universities across the nation. I received my documentary editing education while a graduate student at the University of Tennessee, where three projects were actively editing the papers of Andrew Jackson, James K. Polk, and Andrew Johnson, 19th century presidents with Tennessee roots. Both the Polk Correspondence Project and the Andrew Johnson Project have completed their task. Only the Jackson Papers continues today. I worked on the Polk Correspondence Project for the volume that covered correspondence in the fall of 1844, when Polk was elected to the presidency. Connie, how do you approach this kind of editing? How does documentary editing work? Documentary editing requires that the project identify and collect copies of as much of the correspondence or papers of the individual or group as can be identified. Papers are seldom found in one archive, and some may be in private collections or scattered among descendants. Once copies are collected, and you always work from a copy, they must be authenticated. In the case of political or economic figures, there may be multiple copies of letters. Since they were hand copied, there may be slight differences between each copy of the letter. Speeches and other documents often go through several drafts, and editorial projects must decide what is the original. The editing process can be quite detailed. The first problem may be handwriting. Not everyone had good penmanship, and today's students find handwriting even more difficult to decipher. Even if the handwriting is well-formed, ink blots, the deterioration of the ink over time, bleeding of ink where the individual wrote on both sides of the paper, and other physical changes may make the transcribing of the document difficult. Once the document is transcribed and the transcription approved, there are usually other mysteries to solve. Letters are most frequently written between individuals who have a working or personal relationship. They don't provide details about everything they discuss in the correspondence. Diaries are even more enigmatic. Here, the individual has no need to explain. Documentary editors are called upon to provide contextual information, identify individuals, and explain idiomatic language. Dictionaries of contemporary language, period newspapers, familiarity with the contents of other collections of papers, city directories, and the vast array of secondary histories all play a role in deciphering the references in letters and diaries. Connie, can you give us some examples of edited work that have changed our views or influenced how we think about the past? I thought you would never ask. I will give you a couple of examples, and I'll apologize to our audience in advance. Neither of these examples involve Florida. Students of early American history and women's history are now familiar with the diaries of Martha Ballard, a midwife who lived in Maine in the early days of the Republic. Martha Ballard's diaries consist largely of records of her work as a midwife and as such were ignored or considered of limited benefit until historian Laurel Ulrich demonstrated their importance. 
Covering several decades, the diaries presented the history of a community as it transitioned from British rule to self-rule, a process that exposed conflicts on multiple levels. The role of women as integral to community existence is made evident in the Ballard Diaries. Their publication transformed much of what we thought we knew about life in the early republic. While I was in, at the Pope Papers, I transcribed a document that the Library of Congress now recognizes as extremely rare, a letter from an enslaved man to James K. Polk. We know the man only as Blacksmith Harry, one of the many enslaved men and women and children owned by the Polk family. He wrote from Carrollton, Mississippi, to congratulate Polk on his election to the presidency. Harry had been hired out to a blacksmith shop in the town, and it is clear that he is asking Polk to intercede to assure his position for another year. Harry is not as vigorous as he once was and fears that the blacksmith will not renew the contract for his services, an outcome that would send Harry back to the plantation. He tells Polk how he has followed his career and supported his efforts, probably by talking up Polk's merits to patrons of the blacksmith shop. He reminds Polk of his long service to his family by asking to be mentioned to various members of Polk's family and by addressing Polk as Master Jimmy, a use of his name that suggests Harry knew Polk as a child. Finally, he tells Polk that he has 12 living children, a harsh reminder to those of us reading the letter in the 21st century that he had increased the Polk wealth 12 times. We don't know if Polk answered the letter. We do know that Harry outlived Polk, who died in 1849. Harry was listed among the slaves living on the Carrollton Plantation in the 1860 census. We don't know if he survived to emancipation. Such documents provide us with remarkable insights into the past and shape our interpretations. Interesting. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Now did you read that letter all night, all night, all night? Did you read that letter all night, read it all night long? This is Florida Frontiers. Complete with minarets and domes, Apalaka City Hall is a great example of Moorish Revival architecture. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. The Florida Trust included Opelika City Hall on their annual 11 to Save list. Located in Miami-Dade County, the city of Opelika has the largest collection of Moorish Revival architecture in the Western Hemisphere. The Opelika City Hall building is one of the few remaining original Moorish Revival-style structures. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. The town of Opelika was actually established in 1925 by aviation pioneer Glenn Curtis, who was a New Yorker. So, you know, prior to arriving to Florida, he had become known as the father of aviation. 
partially for establishing a winter encampment in San Diego in 1910 to teach uh, flying to the Army and Navy personnel. Well, by the 1920s, you know, Florida's in the midst of a land boom, and uh, Curtis is inspired by the work of Addison Bosner in Palm Beach, this uh, Mediterranean revival architecture, as well as the work that developer George Myrick was doing down in Coral Gables. And so he got into the real estate development industry as well, developing two communities, Hialeah and Miami Springs. So for his third community, he decided that he would make a community, Opalaka, what would become known as Opalaka. So the name Opalaka itself is a term that dates back to our Native American uh, history. The original word is Opa, Tisha, Waka, Laka, which basically means a big island covered with many trees and swamps. But that name was actually quickly shortened down to Opalaka. Glenn Curtis's plan was to create a city with Middle Eastern-themed architecture that would evoke the stories of the Arabian Nights, a collection of folk tales. The Moorish architectural elements of the structures included onion-shaped domes, minarets, parapets, arches, towers, and spiral staircases. He envisioned this town being designed in that theme, Arabian Nights, or an Arabian fantasy. And he went out to hire a New York architect, Bernhard Mueller, to design 86 buildings in that Moorish revival style. Well, unfortunately for Curtis, by the time development was coming online to be launched, it hit 1926, which is when the Florida land boom burst. And that bubble burst leading to the development uh, not taking off as quick as uh, you know, he originally envisioned. However, at the heart of that development, he did develop the Opalaka Administration Building which was designed to serve as the headquarters for the community and the sales company created by Curtis. Opalaka City Hall, located at 777 Shahrazad Boulevard, is surrounded by grid-like streets with Arabian-related names, such as Sinbad Avenue, Alibaba Avenue, and Sultan Avenue. The City Hall building is one of 20 surviving Moorish revival structures in the Opalaka thematic resource area listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Ennis Davis. This development and this building was designed as the central anchor point of the community and really the focal point of the town and which it still is today. It's one of the most impressive Morris revival architectural buildings that you'll find in America. And it's dominated with a series of uh, minarets. And for a number of years, it did serve as the administration building for the community. Over time, it became the Opelika City Hall and was eventually placed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1982. And then about a decade ago, due to mold infestation, the building was closed. So since that time, the city has been working on a renovation project to restore the building, but it's uh, been going slow over the years due to a lack of funding. And uh, the project was put on an indefinite hold at one point. However, you know, things are starting to heat up again. And, and one of the reasons that we designated this site uh, to the 11 to save list is to bring awareness to that unique history, the city's unique story, as a way to uh, increase opportunities to secure funding for the restoration of the City Hall building. If you would like to learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and the 11 to save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. 
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.